Would you please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, we'll begin in verse 29. We left off last week while you're making your way there with Jesus in the northern area of Tyre and Sidon, Sidon, which is basically in, in Lebanon. Lebanon's the country north of Israel, and this is on the coast. So Jesus is basically in, in modern day Lebanon, where we left off last time. He's in Gentile land. And, and, and again, this is an area mostly populated with Gentiles or what's called uh, Hellenists. Hellenists would be Jews who kind of taken on Greek culture. And so we saw last Sunday that Jesus was ministering to a, a, a Canaanite woman and we saw her faith on display. She was very persistent. Uh, she came to the disciples and the disciples was, came to Jesus and said, please tell her to go away. So wonderful ministry opportunity there. And then she just keeps bu bugging and then Jesus ignores her. Doesn't even say anything, but she's persistent and she keeps talking to Jesus and finally uh, even after him saying, Hey, listen, it's not right for us to minister to the Gentiles. We're he I'm here to minister to the house of Israel. She says, but even the dogs get little scraps from the table. And he just was like marveling at her faith. And he answers her request, which he knew would happen all along. And he goes ahead and heals her severely demon possessed daughter with a word. And as we pick up in Matthew 15, verse 29, it says that Jesus went on from there and walked beside the sea of Galilee. Now just uh, Jesus is probably walking along the Eastern shore of the sea of Galilee. Galilee. So think of like uh, railroad tracks as a rough side. And then the other side and all that kind of stuff, East side, West side, but basically the Eastern shore was, was Gentile land. And I've been to the sea of Galilee. As you look, it's over where Jordan is and you can kind of see that whole area over there. And, and on the other side, it's Jewish, Jewish controlled land. That's just kind of how it's, how it is. And, and so Jesus is most likely walking in an area called the Decapolis, which is basically an area of 10 cities in that area in the Eastern part, which were mostly again, uh, populated by Gentiles and Hellenists. This makes a difference in our story today. So I'm not just telling you history facts. Um, now, many think that Jesus is on, on this side, because if you look in Mark chapter seven, 31 through 37, it says, and then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And so many think that this area is tracking along the same thing. So that's why we think he's on the Eastern side. And from there, Mark goes on to tell us about how a deaf person was, was healed and all of that. And the people were amazed. And so it seems to line up with the story here in Matthew. So Jesus is walking beside the sea of Galilee and check out your Bibles. Verse 29, it says, and he went up into the mountain and sat down there. So he's on the Eastern side, sits down on the mountain there and great crowds came to him, bringing with them their lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, obviously deaf. And, and they put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowds wondered. They were wondering, wouldn't you be wondering if everybody was coming to this person and they were just laying on his feet and he was healing all of them, they're just wondering in what had happened. And they wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing. And what did they do? These people on this, on that side, they glorified the God of Israel. Here they are people in a far off place, not necessarily the people of God, 
glorifying the God of Israel. And Matthew keeps coming back to the sweeping overview of what Jesus is doing, uh, fulfilling the prophecies concerning the wonder and the works of the Messiah. And the result here this time is that these Hellenists and the Gentiles, they are actually glorifying God. You know, think about it for us. You know, we, we expect that certain people should respond to God, but we expect that certain people shouldn't. Right? No, no, we don't, you know. Well, you might have been one of those certain people. Amen. <laughs> and we all rejoice. Anyways, that's the result here is that the Hellenists and the Jews, they were all, they were a glorifying God of Israel. And then verse 32, Jesus called his disciples and said to him, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And so here the crowds have been following Jesus. Obviously he's healing them. Crowds are falling for three days and they're running out of food. And Jesus goes, I can't send them back because they're going to collapse on the way home. It's not like they had a seven 11 right there or whatever it is. They can grab a horrible thing. And, but notice what Jesus does. What does he do right away? He calls his disciples to himself, first of all, and then he wants, he wants them to understand something about him, right? And, and he tells them that he has compassion on the crowds. And then he shows that compassion by his actions. So he wants his disciples to get his heart. They want him, he, want, he doesn't just want to do things. He wants them to understand why he's doing things, where that comes from. And he tells them he has compassion on the crowds who have nothing to eat. Jesus not only cares about people's spiritual condition, church, but he also cares about their physical bodies and, and physical lacks and all those types of things. He cares when people are hungry and going without. He cares when people don't have clothes. He cares when people are stuck. He cares about these things. This isn't the social gospel. This is the heart of God. He cares about people. Do you know that? That's his heart. And their compassion for these, and in their compassion for these people, and in his compassion for these people, he sought to feed them. He actually did something about it. Amen. None of us have compassion about things, but we don't do anything about it. Well, Jesus actually does something about it. And, and we have organizations, Christian organizations and otherwise, but Christian organizations in particular that minister to people groups that aren't necessarily Christian, but they're in need. They're, they're lacking food. They're lacking clothing. They're lacking education and some of these things. And, and they're in great need. And these Christian uh, people go in motivated, hopefully by the love of God. And they go in there, actually feed people and they clothe people and they, and they help people in their distress. And I, and I think this is in keeping with the heart of God. I think this is in keeping with the heart of God and his compassion for people, as we've seen over and over in these passages. Amen. What does he say to do? He says, love your neighbor as yourself and also love your enemies. Right. And so this is actually a, a pretty practical expression of the Lord doing this. And, and so feeding the hungry and clothing the poor and helping the people in the name of the, of, in the, name of the Lord and the love of the Lord. I think it honors the Lord. And so if we're involved in those endeavors, I think it's pleasing to him. And I think we should be. We know that in Matthew 25, it talks about. One of the judgments there, it talks about he's going to have everybody pulled together and he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And one on one side is going to be people who actually did something 
to minister. And I think it's to the body of Christ, but other people think differently, but it's, uh, he's, he just says, you know, Hey, uh, Hey sheep, great job because you clothed me, you fed me, you visited me in jail and all these types of things. And they said, when do we do that? He says, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, this is enter in. And then he talks to the goats. He says, they said, well, he says, because you didn't do this. And he goes, when you didn't do it, they said, why, why didn't, how do we not do this? They said, when you didn't do it to me. So there's a connection there, especially in the body of Christ of ministering to the people of God in a very practical way. It is the way that we show love. It's one of the ways that we show love is, is you see a person in need, especially in the body of Christ, we help them out. And, and I love this body. I think we do that, but we can grow. I can grow. Amen. And, but what often concerns me and I have to say the other side of this is that sometimes there's a purposeful lack of the communication of the gospel to people in some of these groups that minister to people in the name of Christ. Um, there's, there's a, for whatever reason, because we're in a Muslim country, because we, you know, we're going to go ahead and feed them. And then maybe there might be an opportunity to share the gospel. It seems like the gospel, the actual verbal communication of the gospel is on the back burner. And, and let me say that it is not compassionate to feed people, clothe people, educate them and to starve them of what they actually need for all eternity, which is Jesus Christ. So uh, now you're going to go, you're fighting on one side of the, I get it. I feel it. Don't, does anybody else feel this? Some of you works, people are like, well, what about giving? Like you have to do this. And I go, yeah, but not at the expense of this. We have to do this. Not at the expense of that. They work together. You have faith. Show me it by your works. Amen. Amen. And so Jesus did both, but his primary mission was the gospel and the works backed up the message. That's the way we operate. The message is the gospel, the works and the love. They back up, they prove what the message is. They prove it out. That's what Jesus was doing. I'm the Messiah. Therefore, and here's the message of the kingdom. And I'm showing you the kingdom by actually doing all these works. And we see that over and over and over as a pattern in the new Testament. Amen. So I, how many of you have heard that quote by, um, well, somebody, uh, you know, many people attribute it to St. Francis, but we don't, we don't know. Um, but that quote, this is preach the gospel all time. And when necessary, use words. I love that because we are to live lives that communicate the gospel. But the part that can be misunderstood there, and I'm not taking this as scripture is that when necessary, use words. And I'd say for a person who's not a word person, so would go, well, I'm not going to ever communicate the gospel because it's not necessary. <laughs> it's never going to be necessary in your life. It's a, you know, it's an inconvenience. You know what I'm saying? That's not what I'm sure this person meant. It's like live lives that, match the, the message is what they were saying. But listen, we're to do both. We are to get better at and to submit to and actually communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you to grow in that. And thus more word oriented people, doctrine, thought, all those things. We, we need to also follow up our words with, with the good works. Amen. And that's why we have a body where we help one another out of these things. And we grow together. Amen. That's just a side thought, but to feed people and clothe them and to help them without communicating the one thing they need beyond this life, that's not being compassionate. So we do both. And by the way, we have a missions uh, focus Sunday. Fred mentioned it uh, next Sunday, which means we're just going to have a glorified announcements period. We're not going to do normal announcements. We'll just take 20 minutes. And we want to communicate to you 
our, our heart for missions. And it lines up with a lot of these things. Are the organizations we supporting, are, are they actually doing the gospel? Are they sharing the gospel or are they just not? We want to have gospel centric people we're um, engaged in. I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyways, next Sunday, we're going to talk about that just for 20 minutes. So please be in. Then we'll go back to, I'll, I'll do a short message. I promise it'll be short. Jesus was unwilling to send these people away who were hungry. I think that's a good thing. Lest they faint along the way. He had compassion on them. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Verse 33. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place for so great a crowd? How many of you have been following on for the past couple of weeks? Anyone? What just happened? The feeding of the what? The 5,000. And what did they say? <laughs> that time, how are we going to feed all these people in the wilderness? Basically, we don't have enough money for this. It's a head slap moment. Anybody else? They've got Christian amnesia. That's what's going on there. And, and for, it's for that very reason that a lot of scholars think that these events are one and the same. They think they're the same thing because it, it's impossible for anybody to repeat the same dumb thing twice. I think that's why Matthew's writing this down to encourage us. <laughs> He's like, okay guys, this is what we did. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> yeah. Anyone who walks with the Lord can relate to that. Amen. Amen. You know, He's walking you through chapter 14 of your life and he does something amazing and you learn something and then you get, you turn the page and you go to chapter 15 and you forget chapter 14 and the same thing happens again. Anyone else? That's exactly what happens here. Well, they do, they go at it again. He says, where would you, where would you get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed a crowd? Well, verse 34, and Jesus said to him, how many loaves do you have? Again, he says the same thing. And they said seven and a few small fish. Remember at the feeding of the 5,000, it was five loaves, two fish. Now it's seven and a few. There's a discussion on what a few means there here on the other side of the lake. <laughs> it is seven loaves and a few small fish. There's 35. So these are two different events and, and directing the crowds to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them uh, to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were what? And they were satisfied, right? The same process that the Lord did in chapter 14. He does in 15. Same with the feeding of the 5,000 here, right? Organizes the crowds into groups. Uh, he prays, he breaks the food and gives it out. And they ate and were satisfied and were totally filled. That's just Amazing. We spoke about the feeding of the 5,000 about the significance of the bread. And I, and I don't want to skip over that, but I want to remind you that there's a spiritual significance of the bread in John six thirty five. Jesus fed the 5,000 and then had a conversation after that. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And he's talking about the manna that came down from heaven. How many of you guys remember the story of manna in the old Testament, right? This magical food that came down and sustained the Israel for 40 years, right? 
Well, Jesus is saying, I am the bread that will sustain you. You're looking towards the physical. I am the spiritual. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Connecting to the Isaiah passage we read this morning, come and buy from me. You can't buy it. I can give it to you. And you'll be truly satisfied. So this is also a picture here of Jesus Christ satisfying the human soul with eternal life as we believe in his death and resurrection. And he changes us from the inside out. But there's also um, another significance to this miracle. It says at the end of verse 37, they took up the seven basketfuls of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides the women and children. So just an ma- amazing miracle here. 4,000 people and then women and children. And they are all satisfied. That's just amazing. Now, how many basketfuls of fish were left over in this miracle? Seven. How many people? 4,000 men, not including women and children. Now, how many baskets were left over with the feeding of the 5,000? 12. Two different events. We know this, right? So there are obviously two different events, but now when scripture lays out numbers like this, it just makes me start to think. Okay. So I just start to dig. So from this point on, I want you to go, this is Matt's conjecture. Okay. This is Matt's conjecture. This is Matt just thinking things through, but check this out. When the scriptures lay out numbers like this, sometimes there can be something that the Holy Spirit is communicating. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it really seems to line up. The feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 14 took place on the Jewish side of the sea of Galilee. And there were 12 baskets. Many people think this is significant to the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 disciples, because there happened to be 12 of them. But here we have what we have the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 15, we have seven baskets left over. So not correlating with the number of disciples, by the way, different word for basket in both places, small basket in on the feeding of the 5,000, which is a Jewish basket with a small opening because they were concerned about things getting unclean, becoming unclean. And this is a wide open basket, I think, a Gentile basket. That's what a lot of people think there. But the, what we have here is some say the significance of the seven baskets left over is linked to the seven Gentile tribes that were in the land of Israel when the Hebrews came out of Egypt. Remember, he's talking to a Canaanite woman. He's on the east side of the Decapolis. He's ministering to the Gentiles. Deuteronomy 7, 1 lists seven, seven of them. He says, when the Lord, your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the, Arm, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the per- Perizzites, uh, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the parasites. No, no, just the Jebusites. So seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. So he lays out seven nations. Talk about the Gentiles that were in and around the nation of Israel. So seven general Gentile nations. So the seven baskets could be speaking of the significance of the Gentiles. You've got Jesus feeding and satisfying the Jews first, and you've got Jesus feeding and satisfying the Gentiles later. And so I would say the big picture that might be a significance again, might don't get into weird numerology, but this just seems to be jumping off. Okay. The big picture is that Jesus Christ is the bread of life that satisfies all people to the Jew first, the Gentile second. The Lord Jesus is salvation for all men. Amen. 
Whoever would receive him as Lord would have eternal life. And he has compassion on all of us. Listen, he looks at us as sheep without a shepherd. He knows we're hungry, but here's the thing. It's not just our physical hunger. He's concerned about. He says, there's a bunch of people out there that are starving and I am not willing that they go away hungry and faint. So I will become bread for them. That's what the Lord did, but you must come and you must receive the bread. That's up to you. God calls. He calls you to him. He says, I'm the bread of life. I've broken for you. I've done everything for you, but you must come to me in repentance. Blessed are the poor in spirit who have no money, spiritual money, so to speak. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It seems that that could be the significance with the number there in the two miracles of the feeding of the 5,000, the 4,000, but I'll leave that up to you for discernment before the Lord. Amen. Seems like it could be fitting. Verse 39. And after sending away the crowds, he got into a boat and went into the region of Magadan. Now I know you know all this is where all this is. He's going back to the Jewish side. This is where Capernaum is a little bit North. And then you've got Magadan and then you've got Magdala in case you are caring, which is where Mary of Magdala is from. It's not her last name. It's not Magdala. It's where she's from Magdalene. Right? So back over to the Jewish side, just South of Capernaum, North of Magdala chapter 16 and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him. And they asked him to show him a sign from heaven. Can't even get a break. They're just right on him. Like rats on a Cheeto, man. Look at that. So no time at all before the religious leaders show up to test Jesus. Look at that. Now I'm not sure if you caught it. Who are these guys that are coming, right? Who are they? The Pharisees and the what? Sadducees. We've got another group introduced here. And what I didn't catch it my first reading through, but it's both the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and they came testing, asking him to show him a sign from heaven. The Sadducees were at odds with the Pharisees. They were political enemies of the Pharisees and, and they were at doctrinal odds of the Pharisees. Now, now the Sadducees were mostly a political aristocratic group. They were in charge of the priesthood. They were the ones in charge of the money changing at the temple and all this kind of stuff. And so they were, they were the ones in charge there. Now the thing about their doctrine, what they believed, unlike the Pharisees is they, they denied God's involvement in everyday life. They denied God's involvement in everyday life. So probably similar to a deist. They wound up things and left, right? Or, or, any resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection. The resurrection was not, they did not believe in resurrection. They also didn't believe in an afterlife or a spiritual world. They did not believe in angels or demons. And the joke goes, and that is why they are sad. You see? Yes. Thank you. Got those Christian jokes down. And by the way, these guys were mostly again, the priests in Israel. And so they were the most, they were mostly a political party there. But the fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were gathering together to test Jesus tells you something about their motives. They wanted to destroy him. 
You know, it's like when we have our two major parties get together and agree on something, either it's a national like tragedy or we are in for a ride. You know, <laughs> it's like one or two. Oh, no one laughed there. I got, it's, I got, I got enough to make everybody upset. But usually, you know, I'm just saying when, when the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so to speak. And, and so basically we have two groups out here, here to kill Jesus and they don't care about their political difference. They want him gone because Jesus is cutting in on their power and they are going to test him and try to catch him. And so their test is full of irony because they said, show us from a, a sign from heaven. The Sadducees don't even believe in all this weird stuff, right? They're sitting here asking for a sign from heaven. The Pharisees denied the miracles that were going on right in front of them. The Sadducees are, didn't even believe in what they were asking. And Jesus had been doing nothing but the miraculous, but all around them. Can you believe that? Have we been, are we on this reading the same Bible? What's Jesus been doing constantly all over the place, the miraculous. And what do they do? Yeah, whatever. Show us a sign from heaven. And there's a thought there about the earthly signs could be demonic and heavenly signs or whatever. They wanted, basically wanted something like calling down fire from heaven. You got to go all the way. We want to see that kind of sign. Show us that kind of sign. And Jesus calls them on their hypocrisy or verse two. He answered them. He says, when it is even evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the parents of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now we, we understand our, our technical ability to, to understand the weather. We turn on the app on our phone, but how many of you have been living long enough to the earth to where you, you understand weather cycles like the wind blew in yesterday. And then what happened right after the wind rain and a little bit of snow and stuff. We know that when the, when the wind comes, something's coming after similar situation with them. Listen, you can see that the sky is a certain condition. You know, what's coming, but here's the thing. You're the leaders of Israel and you can't discern spiritually what's going on. You can't, I'm, I'm performing all these things that the Bible lays out, that the scriptures lay out that the Messiah would be doing. And you don't see it. You don't see it. Jesus says, you can see all that. You can't see me. And Jesus says to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. This is very interesting. Verse four, all the signs and wonders that Jesus performed could never save anyone in and of themselves. They pointed to him. They are the shadow. He is the substance. Amen. They are the shadow. He is the substance. He did them to fulfill prophecy, but they all pointed to him. The old Testament scriptures, as he would do on the road to Emmaus, he, he went through all the old scriptures and pointed out how the prophets and uh, of the old Testament, the law and the prophets all pointed to him were fulfilled in him. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, ladies, amen. They went through it. It all points to him, the, the priesthood, the sanctuary, the sacrifices, everything, all those shadows pointed to the substance of Jesus Christ. And he says an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. The seek after a sign was the aim of a wicked and adulterous generation. Jesus says, because they didn't really want Jesus. They wanted the sign. How many of you have said, God, give me a sign. 
anyone else besides me, God, give me a sign. And there are people out there saying, God, if you're real, give me a sign. God, give me a sign. Call down fire from heaven. And you are asking for something supernatural, miraculous, out of the, out of the normal. So God will prove himself to you. And here's what Jesus said to the people that wanted that. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. You want a sign, but do you want me? Look, John 6. After the feeding of the 5,000, those people who watched Jesus turn those elements into fish, more fish and more bread. When he did that and he fed them all and they were satisfied, what happened? They followed him around. And then Jesus says, here's the significance. Unless you eat of my flesh and you drink of my, my blood, you have no life in you. I'm the bread of life. And he keeps repeating this in, in tons of ways. And what did they do? They got mad at him. They got upset. They wanted the bread maker, not the bread of life. And Jesus says to them, uh, well, he basically, he doubled down on it. He kept saying it in several ways. Read John six. It'll convict you. They wanted the sign. In John six sixty six, very interesting verse. I would read it if I were you. John six sixty six. it says basically, a lot of them left because of the hard saying. It says the disciples fought, left him and followed him no more. Many disciples left him and followed him no more. No more. And then Peter comes back and says, and he says to G, the, the boys, the 12, right? He says, are you going to leave me as well? And Peter goes, where else would we go? You're it. And we'll get into that in a minute, but, or next week. But these guys, they wanted the temporal and they denied the eternal. And Jesus could see into these men's hearts. Matthew is writing this all down to show us that the Gentiles that just saw Jesus, they glorified the God of Israel. The Canaanite woman had faith. That was amazing. But when it came to the actual people of Israel, man, there was a struggle there. So Jesus said to them, verse four, but no sign will be given to you. I'm not giving you a sign. Do you want a sign? Listen, everybody, God's not going to give you a sign. He's not going to do it. He has given you one sign and here it is. Now, I don't deny the supernatural, but listen, this is what he's saying. He said, no sign will be given to that generation except for the sign of Jonah. And they're just sitting there going, okay, what in the world does he mean there? What is the sign of Jonah? How many of you know the story of Jonah? God called this Jewish prophet to go to a Gentile land to call them to repentance. He didn't want to go because he hated them. Like Jews did not like Gentiles. Gentiles did not like Jews. They don't, I mean, Middle East, anybody. So he gets on a boat says, I'm going the opposite direction of what you want, God, because I know what's going to happen. If I go into that city, you're going to be merciful. You're going to heal them. That's at the end of the story. I know your heart and I don't want to do it because you're going to be, you're going to forgive them. So he gets in a boat get, and he goes on into the sea. And then the, sto- the storm starts to rise. And even the pagan sailors on there are like, the gods are mad. And Jonah knows the whole time that it's God. He's got his number. He goes, it's me. Fine. I'll jump off. And he jumps off. The storm stops and he gets swallowed by a great large fish. And he's in the belly of a whale for three days, three nights. At the end of that, he gets spit out. And then he finally obeys God and goes and they repent. Okay. That's the big story. But here's the significance. 
three days, three nights in the belly of a whale. That is the message. Jesus says, this is the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. What is that sign? Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And he was in the ground for three days and three days later, he rose again from the dead. That is the sign. Listen, the sign that this world needs to know is that Jesus Christ is the only man who died and rose again. Now there were others that Jesus raised and the apostles raised. That's that They died. They redied. Jesus died and rose again. He's it. He is life. He is the bread that you need that I need. That's the only sign. That is the sign you must believe in. Amen. That's the gracious sign of God. That is the mercy of God. That is the compassion of God. That is the love of God poured out in one man, Jesus Christ towards you, towards me. And through him, you have life and the denial of that. You have death and judgment. He says, no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah, but he gave the sign of Jonah freely and lovingly for God. So loved the world that he gave, he gave it to you and it's yours right now. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin, for my sin. And by believing in him, you are totally satisfied. You've satisfied the wrath of God through him. He has satisfied the wrath of God and you have eternal life, but they did not. And so he left them and departed. That's very sad. So if you're waiting for a sign, wait no longer. That's it. Repent and believe. I think I'm going to stop there because I've, if I can get into the other place, because listen, what happens next it says, and indeed when the disciples reach the other side, they've forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began to discussing among themselves saying, we brought no bread. <laughs> But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 or how many baskets you gathered or seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gather? How is it that you fail to understand that I not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood. Oh, you're talking about spiritual things again. I'm so focused on bread. Anyone else? What you need is spiritual life this morning. Amen. God is so willing to give it to pardon abundantly. And for those who have received the Lord, enjoy the abundance. Keep running to him. He is your bread basket. Amen. He's just, he's everything you need. Continual source of life for you day after day. Amen. He's everything for you. Lord God, we love you. We want to love you in word and deed. And we pray that our hearts would be open and receptive to your spirit. And we ask that there's anyone listening online or here that would have never surrendered their heart to you, that right now that they would believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And you will be saved. Turn from your sin. Follow Jesus. He's merciful. So Lord, thank you for your mercy. We celebrate you. We love you. It's in your name. We pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week in the Lord prayer tonight. Amen.